Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. It's round about half past two. It's Sunday, December the 25th, 1977. It's the top of the Pops Christmas special. And this selection box has got a lot of cat shit in it. <laughs> hey, up, you pop-crazed youngsters. This is Al Needham, and we're now into part three of Chart Music 47. Hope you had a nice Christmas. Uh, me and the rest of Team Chart Music spent a lovely Christmas morning going round the children's hospital explaining the semiotics of legs and co-routines to the kids <laughs> and giving them loads of Pickwick Top of the Pops LPs. Oh, the looks on their little faces made it all worthwhile. <laughs> anyway, let's rejoin the show in progress because it can't get any worse. Nostalgia made a return to the charts in these past 12 months in the form of New York's Manhattan Transfer Company. The singing group, that is, with Chanson d'Amour. Standing by a Christmas tree while some tinsel sways in a very unsafe manner tells us that nostalgia was big in the charts this year and fucks up the name of the next group. <laughs> it's Manhattan Transfer and Chanson d'Amour. Formed by Tim Hauser in New York in 1969, the original Manhattan Transfer signed to Capitol Records in 1971 and made one LP before the label dropped them and the group dissolved in 1973. When Hauser was working as a cabaret in New York, he picked up a waitress called Laurel Mass and discovered they were both singers. A few weeks later, one of his regular passengers invited him to a party where he met Janice Siegel, another singer. After he was linked up with Alan Paul, who was playing Johnny Casino in the Broadway production of a new musical called Grease, he decided to reactivate the Manhattan Transfer name. 
After becoming a regular fixture on the New York club circuit, they passed on a demo to Ahmet Ertegun and were signed to Atlantic Records. They put out the LP, The Manhattan Transfer, in 1975, landed their own TV show on CBS in the same year and made their first dent on the UK chart when Tuxedo Junction got to number 24 in February of 1976. This is the follow-up a cover of the 1958 single which Art and Dottie Dodd took to number six in the US charts in April of 1958, and it got to number one in March of this year, deposing the old sailor. And here they are, facing off against the might of the Top of the Pops Orchestra. Fucking hell, more slow music! I would have been so angry at this point. I would have just been been under the dinner table with my cars. I would not have been paying yes. attention. I would have deliberately turned my back on it. I would have put the ricochet racers into my mouth. <laughs> for fuck's sake. I'll tell you what, though. It's, it's another early memory for mm. me. Mm. This is another of those first songs I remember. And, you know, chansons of more. Ra-ta-ta-ta-ta. Of course. It's one of my first ever attempts at writing comedy that I heard this song as a five-year-old. Right. And I imagined someone singing chanson d'amour and somebody else walking in with a stick and battering them over the head. <laughs> saying, Rat-ta-ta-ta-ta, which shows two things. First of all, that my sense of humour has always been based around pain and anger. Mm. And secondly, I could have got work writing for copycats. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> But, you know, we're, we're all taking wrong turns in life. Yes. You know? That's why we're here. Um, but, and also, there was only one kind of transfer that I'd ever heard of, right? <laughs> so I didn't understand what what their name. It was like I was hoping they'd be putting sheets of grey plasticky paper <laughs> on each other's foreheads yeah. and oh. rubbing them with a coin. So they had little Empire State buildings floating in midair yeah. over one eyebrow and half of something that came off by mistake. <laughs> oh, man. That reminds me, around about this time, I uh, I got a load of transfers with some bubbler and uh, went to me non on grandpa's with them all up and down me arm. My grandpa went fucking mental. He had a uh, he had a tattoo, yeah. but he was uh, he was in the merchant navy right. in the war, so he'd earned this. Yeah, and I think he was he was a bit pissed off that his grandson was looking like a right tramp and hadn't <laughs> earned those tattoos. Yeah. So yeah, very uncomfortable afternoon with a bit of um, white spirit and uh, a scrubbing brush ensued. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that Manhattan transfer, you bastards. I mean, I hated this song because it was, I I saw it as French. And, uh. Well, you you used to hear a lot of songs with a bit of French. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I was very angry at France in 1977 because they won the Eurovision Song Contest Mm. with this song that I couldn't understand. Uh, And, uh, you know, denied Lindsay DePaul and Mike Moran. (laughs) The trouble is, though, when you're a kid. And you don't know any French. You just hear it phonetically yes. mm. and assume that it's something in English that you can't quite make exactly. out. Like when I first heard Michelle by the Beatles mm. when I was a child, I thought he was singing Michelle, my bell. Yes. Sunday smoky won't play piano on song. <laughs> and it didn't worry me yeah. much no. that it was gibberish because when you're a kid, the adult world is full of gibberish, mm. you know, and you just assume that one day some of it will make sense to you, you know, and some of it does. And of course, you know, Je t'adore, Larry Grayson. <laughs> you know, that was a, a tribute to uh, to one of your lot, Neil. Oh, he was Nuneaton, wasn't he? Not he was, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Treacle town, as we call it. Um, <laughs> but, but, but what Taylor's saying about adult gibberish, that's mm. where I'd mentally put this. It's 
But it's adults being fucking annoying, to be honest with you. Yes. Um, singing this song that I don't really understand. And, and I wouldn't have got the fact that it's a kind of, you know, it's an old song for starters. They're kind of looking, everything else is kind of 20s-ish, 30s-ish. But it would have mm. just aggravated me. would have just just aggravated me. It's adults being all adulty and not yes. letting us in. And not giving yeah. us even a, a chink or an aperture of fun at all. This yeah. is This is a world-weary kind of record. I'm five. I don't need this on Christmas afternoon. This no, is bringing me down no, massively. It's the musical equivalent of your your mum letting you have a swig of champagne and it all comes <laughs> out your nose and you hate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> Doesn't taste of alpine. No, no, that's exactly what it is. It's just, yeah. and it, it it's deliberate. It, I'm not saying Manhattan Transfer thought, let's make a song that kids won't like, but it feels mm. almost exclusionary. To the point where, you know, I just wish that, in a sense, people buying this record... I mean, you do have to ask the question, who the fuck is buying this record or bought this record? But beyond that, yeah, those chart returns should not have been sent through. Um, No. As soon as you buy this record, you're prohibited from contributing to the charts, in a sense. It just shouldn't be there. It shouldn't have been in the charts. And, my God, it should definitely not have been on the Christmas Top of the Pops. What a bummer I'm having. It, it was the year that I finally started hating shit number ones. Mm. And just getting really angry at the fact that this song was at number one and that song wasn't. And mm. just 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 realising that other people are cunts, <laughs> essentially. I think what I object to most about Manhattan Transfer is that they're all about this suggestion of some kind of art deco mm. elegance, mm. you know. Like, it's like they drink everything out of a a wide conical cocktail glass mm, and yeah. live in the Chrysler building. Yes. Um, when you actually see them, I mean, they're about as elegant as a catheter factory. Yes. It's like there's <laughs> it's a bunch of old hacks yeah. mm. shuffling about, clicking their fingers yeah. uh, and refusing to commit. Yeah. Like they can't, it's like they can't wait to get back in their corduroy slacks and sneakers <laughs> and get home in time for mash, you yeah. know, and uh, order some Chinese food. Yes. And at least modern revivalists make an effort mm. to really live the part yeah. and inhabit the past. Yeah. Know. Whereas this lot have just got a lead singer with hair like Dave Bartram, mm. like exuding that sort of 70s, middle-aged fake Frenchness like Madame Penoir from Faulty Towers, um, who was played by A.A. Gill's mum. You know. Really? Yeah. And then there's three nobodies around one mic. Yeah. There's a bloke who looks like one of the residents when he's taking his eyeball head <laughs> off. And then two, two still less distinguished characters. And however much they croon and lift their eyebrows, it's all just pissing about, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's not even like they're trying to do something for the olden's. No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. would be harder to mock and easier to live with. It's not like that. No. It's not nostalgia for the for the hopeless. Mm. It's a sort of strange, smarmy, fundamentally worthless genre exercise yeah. Yeah, that yeah. seems to expect a a pat on the back from a modern audience just for existing. I would have seen this as a nine-year-old as, oh, America thinks they can do a Brotherhood of Man and look how they failed. <laughs> <laughs> now, what Taylor's yeah. getting out there, spot on, what would have angered me, I think, as a five-year-old, would have been not the motivation behind making the record, but what is the motivation for buying this and listening to it? Now, if you're on mm. your own, would you fucking yeah. listen to this? You know that episode of Steptoe and Some where they split, split the, the house room, up yeah. in two? And Harold's there and he's got these beans in a cafetiere yeah, yeah. and uh, he's got all his silver service out 
and uh, he's, he's finally enjoying his own living space at the first time. This is exactly the song he put uh-huh. on before he uh, turned the ballet on. <laughs> <laughs> and the little door opens at the side yeah. and the hand reaches out and nicks the cruet. I mean, if you put this yeah. on in a room with people and they agree to sing along to it with you, you, you scum and you need shooting. Uh, mm. It's a horrible record. Yeah, but but it's ratatatata. You know that was. Even though I hated this song, I did love shouting that at people in the playground. <laughs> that was quite. That yeah. was quite the thing to do for a, a, a couple uh-huh. of weeks. Uh-huh. And because it's French, you just think, oh, this must. They must be doing a sex. No, these people should be made to milk a cow, mm. dressed like that, just to stick an udder in yeah. their stupid world, you know what I mean? But Top of the Pops has not let them down, have they? Because, yeah. you know, they've got a nice Art Deco set and we actually get to see some of the Top of the Pops orchestra. Yeah. It's the only people who come out of this with any credit. And they actually say to the saxophonist, you know, they talk to him like he's another human being who's part mm-hmm. of the band, which was nice. Yeah. Bit of recognition for the, for him. Yeah, the BBC are the only people who come out of this with any credit. They've knocked mm. together a reasonably era-authentic stage set for, you know, 15 quid. And, uh, yeah, the, the Top of the Pops Orchestra are in their element here because they're mostly mm, jazz musicians, yeah. and obviously this is a piece of piss yeah, yeah. to play. Uh, now, the original record's got another Richard Perry production, uh, but, you know, you can't even make the same case for that as on the old Sailor record because this mm. really is just smug kitsch, and uh, destroying it would be more artistic than creating <laughs> it. But it's great to see actually one member of the Topper Pops Orchestra getting his chance to shine. And it turns out that he's a fat, sweaty bloke in a tight waistcoat. <laughs> he does look like Big Bill Werbenuk, he does. He does, he does. And it's a proper sight because we don't really get a proper sight of him earlier with Denise Williams. Yeah. Um, and the old sailor is, is simply in an infinite regress of himself. Yes. Um, which actually is quite effective. But yeah, I, I liked that moment when the sax solo goes, the, the guy does his sax solo. And then he kind of, he steps back and let the band take, lets the band take over. But there's a kind mm. of sense that that's the good bit over with. Now back to the shite singing and the horrible yeah. verses and the awful chorus. So yeah, yeah. it's nice to see a member. Nice to see he can stand up as well. <laughs> so Chanson d'Amour would spend three weeks at number one eventually yielding the floor to a single we'll be hearing soon. The follow-up, Don't Let Go, would get to number 32 in June of this year. They would have three more top 40 hits in 1978 and made their last chart appearance in 1985 when Spice of Life got to number 19 in February of that year. Now, I've got to ask you, kids, looking back over the whole year, artists you've really not liked. Is, is there anyone who's really grated on you at all this year? You mean apart from hot chocolate? More forced banter from Kid and Edmonds, where they do the tried and trusted routine where they slag off a band without realising they're standing behind them. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, Kid, has, his comic timing is not bad. Mm. Mm. 
you got to say, he could have had a far more creative career yeah. <laughs> as a supper club stand. Yeah, he could. Canada has never laughed so much, the Newfoundland Herald. <laughs> We're finally introduced to hot chocolate with So You Win Again. We've covered hot chocolate in chart music number one, when they were number one with this, their 15th hit single. It was the follow-up to Heaven is in the Backseat of My Cadillac, which got to number 25 for two weeks in September of 1976, and it was written by Russ Ballard, who also wrote Since You've Been Gone for Rainbow, God Gave Rock and Roll to You by Argent, and New York Groove by Barry Blue. It went to number one in June of this year, knocking Show You The Way To Go by the Jacksons off the top spot. And here they are, seemingly performing for the sole benefit of Kid and Edmonds. <laughs> oh, this is where it all began for chart music, this one. Yeah, it's that, that lovely, slick but cheap Mickey Most production. Mm. It's the first thing you notice about this. There's a basic crunch to this record that you don't get on American records Uh like this, Uh even though they technically sound better, because it's made in London, and it's not quite state-of-the-art technically, and it works beautifully for hot chocolate Mm. because there's something so charmingly suburban about them, but not in a way which undermines their genuine quality, adds to it, Mm. in fact. You look at Errol Brown here, he looks remarkable. Mm. It's like what I thought was a cool outfit when I was about 12, You know, but on him, it actually does look great. He's got a black shirt with the collar turned up, a sort of silver necklace. His shirt's tucked into black cords mm. with a silvery belt and pointy silver boots. He looks like a high street Lando Calrissian. <laughs> it's like L- Lando Calrissian at CNA. Yes. Um And you could almost believe he was in your town, yeah. wowing the local youth club disco. And it's perfect for what hot chocolate are, mm. like true warmth from a cold country Mm, um and meanwhile the rest of the band had done up in off-white which may have been white before someone put their outfit in the same wash as Errol's there's a bit of a sartorial split in that band because Errol Brown's obviously listened to Joe Strummer's maxim like trousers like brain (laughs) and opted for some reasonably drain pipey black trousers but the bassist is sporting an absolute pair of billy smarts (laughs) they're fucking voluminous and from here on in if you're like me you're spending your time watching this performance scene where the rest of the band stand on trouser leg with you know and it's a it's a 50 50 split as far as i can see well i mean the thing is as we're seeing throughout this episode not many people look great in 1977 um but errol no he you know he cuts a and and crucially, always yes. this masterly knowledge of the camera and where it is, and the yes. use of slight gesture, but mainly just gently getting into the groove. He he's my Errol Brown. I think for a lot of people, he's my Get Out clause Tory, if you like. Um, you know, mm. um, I'm not, he's so lovely. I don't even hold that against him. And and even at the young age that I was, yeah. age five, when when I would have watched this, it would have been clear to me that here was clearly just a lovely, beautiful man inside and out singing these these awesome mm. songs. Emma is the actual one for me yeah. with Hot Chocolate, what a song that is. But yes. but this is great too. Yeah. And the way that they play it masks yeah. that it's a Russ Ballard song. Um, but I mean, mm. age five, of course, you're barely conscious of a songwriting process. What I would have thought is simply, this no. is what happens. It's Hot Chocolate, this is what they do. 
and you respond and and yes. it's a wonderful performance of a wonderful song by a wonderful band and one of the one of the best frontmen british frontmen ever who should really be talked about mm. um as a as a ferry yes. brian ferry type figure or a bowie type figure um he, he he's amazing errol brown um and yeah he's my get out clause yeah. tory yeah well he's only a singer I mean, they're all idiots when it comes to anything important, <laughs> you know. No, I mean, regardless of whether their idiocy drops them on broadly your side of an argument mm. or the other, it doesn't matter much because they don't know what they're talking about anyway. You know, if anything, you, if anything, at least you can say that the Tory singers, by and large, don't pretend they're experts or authorities on politics, mm. unlike a lot of so-called uh, socialist musicians whose politics, when you actually look at it, are equally infantile and poorly informed it's just anyone seeking any kind of political insight in pop music you know you might as well might as well ask geese about charcoal i mean they're overgrown (laughs) children they sit in vans drinking that's their life um you know they don't know anything what errol knows is how to perform and and how to look just incredibly Mm. stylish it's not just his awareness of the camera in terms of the way his eyes follow it but also He's going to put a finger point in there somewhere, but he puts it in exactly the right <laughs> yes. place. You know, he just knows. He's just fantastic, yeah. Errol Brown. And this performance is an absolute peak in this uh, Top of the Pops, isn't it? Fucking hell, he's here they come to save the day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not that hard to be a peak in such a fuck-awful episode. But no. This is definitely one of them. And, and yeah, Taylor's spot on in terms of this record absolutely it's not aspiring to be a black american pop record um although it could have been but it's that roughness to the hot chocolate sound that they always had that's why emma is such an odd record it's so grimy and dirty sounding and hypnotically dronish and they always had that just a little bit too much fuzz just a little bit too much on the snare that that was just always deeply deeply pleasurable from those productions yeah it's the only Mm. problem is that it's this song which even though it's great and it sounds really nice mm. and it's got that great yearning hook it's one of the less exciting hot chocolate hits just because yeah it doesn't have mm. that hysterical edge um or the tragic short story lyric which all their best mm. songs do so it can only seem mm. like an also run but it does bring that that lovely city suburb romance to a christmas top of the pops that is genuinely lacking in that I mean, most of this program, yeah. you wouldn't even know that trainee beauticians had fiancés. Um, <laughs> it takes hot chocolate to, to bring it home. Also, I just I remember as a kid being so impressed with that album cover of theirs, which was just, I think it's their greatest hits, which is just a massive close-up is, yeah. of a woman's mouth uh, with an impractical amount of lipstick on, about to crunch a Malteser between her teeth, because yeah. everyone thought it was original and hilarious to call Errol Brown Malteser head um, back in the mm. days when a, a shiny bonce was a ludicrous rarity. But then it's like, oh, right, yeah. oh, they preempted you, you know. And it's fantastic yeah. mm, just as mm. 70s graphics because it's a beautifully stupid image rendered mm. as absolute airbrushed perfection. It's like, you know, yeah. like high-end yeah. glossy magazine advertising. So it had that irresistible air of late 70s cheapo luxury. Um, which beguiled yeah, yeah. me as a wide-eyed sort of upper working lower middle class kid for whom this stuff was just well, yeah. just out of reach like how i begged my mum to allow us to experience the the opulence of imperial leather soap but no <laughs> it was 30p more and she distrusted yeah. it 
But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, in, in the mid-70s, <laughs> if you had a band name that suggested something that could go into a woman's <laughs> mouth without being obscene, then that was going to be LP cover. I mean, mm. Wild Cherry is the prime example of that. Yeah. yeah. But that hot chocolate sleeve is a design classic because right now mm. we can all picture it perfectly, including mm. the typeface and yeah. font in our yes. heads. But it's yeah. really stuck in our heads, that image. Yeah. The only downer to this song is that I had a mate and I'd go around his house and we'd play all these games that he was dead good at and he'd always batter me at them. And every time he won, he would sing, I win again. <sighs> I win again, here I stand again, the winner, <laughs> bastard. <laughs> Fucking hell, man, I should have unleashed the ricochet race and gone on him. <laughs> so you win again, would stay at number one for three weeks, eventually giving way to I Feel Love by Donna Summer, which isn't on this episode, fuck it. The follow-up, Put Your Love In Me is currently at number 10 in the charts and it would stay there for two weeks. They would go on to rack up eight more top 40 hits until they split up in 1986. At the beginning of the year, a lot of people said, well, I mean, he's uh, doing a hit show and whatever, television show. He's bound to have hit records, but he's really done it and held on. David Soul. Don't give up on us, baby. Don't make that seem right. The future isn't just one night. Edmunds sitting on a massive Christmas present that might be a Remington shaver or something like that. It's that kind of dimension, isn't it? Tells us that people were expecting the next artist to be a success in 1977, and my God, they were right. It's David Soul with Don't Give Up On Us, Baby. We've already covered David Solberg in chart music number 23 when he did Silver Lady, but this was his debut single recorded in between series of Starsky and Hutch, which was on BBC One last night. It was written by Tony McCauley, who had written or co-written Let the Heartaches Begin for Long John Baldry, Baby Now That I've Found You and Build Me Up Buttercup for the Foundations, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes for Edison Lighthouse, You Won't Find Another Fool Like Me for the New Seekers and Lights of Cincinnati for Scott Walker. It was the first new number one of 1977, and as he's probably at home in Bay City at the moment, noshing a big turkey with a white stripe down the side with Starsky and Uggy Bear, <laughs> here is the video. Man, if you were Starsky and Uggy and Bear, you could actually spend a very good Christmas playing with toys based on you. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. I'll tell you what, though, you can see why they didn't let Kid introduce him. It would have been mm. like the double life of Veronique or uh, <laughs> yes. Spider-Man pointing at himself in the mirror. These two Unter-Redfords. Like, yeah, yes. I'm, I'm glad they spared us that. I remember it going round the playground at the beginning of 1977 that Hutch was putting a record out, and it was seen as an extremely positive thing. Yeah. But, you know, we were expecting some proper badass funk, like the theme tune with Huggy Bear on wah-wah guitar mm. and <laughs> singing how skill it was to bomb about in massive cars and land on your arse on the bonnet of them. But this, a song about him essentially mourning over a girl, 
was very disappointing. It was, yeah. When you finally got to hear David Soul's voice on this record, the high-fluted mm. nature of it, that was a real startling shock to me yes. uh, as a kid. Because he doesn't obviously speak like that in Starsky and Hutch. Um, I no. didn't expect that sound to come out of his mouth when he started singing. But we still gave him a pass because he was Hutch. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the, re- the British record-buying public could not get enough of David no. Soul in 77. Because, no. I mean... You know, it, this song, it's a little bit backrack, a little bit Chicago's If You Leave Me Now as well, which yeah, seems to actually be exerting, very so. exerting an influence on a few records this year. It, it's mm. a guaranteed monster hit with the added push given by Soul, who we love because we love Starsky and Hutch. Um, yeah. As a kid, though, you don't particularly want to hear this kind of apology record, you know, no. which is essentially what it is. You, even when the exciting bit about I really lost my head last night line comes in um it's not much use to you as a kid it might be used to you as a grown man who's been a twat last night and you might play this to your partner and you know thump your heart with your fist and nod gently as that line comes on but (laughs) Mm. um as a kid yeah it's pretty useless record the the freaky thing about this video isn't the actual video itself which seems to basically be a lot of close-up shots of david singing the song yeah. but it's that freaky cutaway yes. that happens to kids dancing to him yes um but they're dancing to him in front of a massive screen with his face on it where the video yeah. is playing it's suddenly like something out of they live or something and it, it it's very weird and it's a lingering long cutaway as well it, it yes, goes on it for really two years goes on for like a minute so it's i mean just adding another little soup son of oddness to an already strange episode. Mm. Um, I would have loved David Soul, so I wouldn't have minded looking at his lovely face, but I wouldn't yeah. have liked the record much, I don't think. Because it's mainly just David Soul's head floating in space, isn't it? And then mm, mm. meeting another David Soul head on the, you know, passing through yeah. and everything. Would have been great if uh, Starsky's head had just come in at one point and just blown <laughs> on his cheek, like he did when he's looking at that stripper in the opening credits of Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. See, last time... David Soul appeared on this podcast. I think I told you the story about me as a small child clinging onto a root, yes. trying to stop myself sliding down a bank in the yeah. forest into a small ravine from which I might never have rescued. With the chorus of this song going around my head, um, mm. a ghostly encouragement mm. to hold on. But yes. for what, I'm not quite sure, looking at how <laughs> it all turned out. But <laughs> who argues with Hutch? But it just goes to show, no this is one of those records which are among the first pop records I remember and which stuck in my head. And I think people underestimate the effect of that, not on your taste necessarily, but on your general sort of almost subconscious understanding of what pop music is and how it works. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone talks about how all the great soul singers and that grew up hearing gospel music in church. Yes. And that filtered in. Mm. And then you think of all the white British songwriters from, say, the 60s who tried to copy that um, mm. but whose melodies all sound like Protestant hymns, which they would have heard oh, yeah. in school, you know, and would have got into their heads when they were kids, because that was their background. So however hard they tried to replicate soul or R&B, you know, it came out like, you know, Charles Wesley, godfather of Britpop. Um, <laughs> but because of that, I can almost enjoy this, because to me, I, uh, until I start thinking about it, it sounds very natural and mm. weirdly definitive, mm. you know. But you can tell he's a hack actor because when you look at the video, how he's trying to sell this song, he's mm. doing all these ballad moves, right? Yes. Like he's mm. looking thoughtfully off camera 
and then tossing his head to the side a bit at the start of a line mm. um, and raising his eyebrows in that sort of mm, maybe kind of shape for no <laughs> yeah. particular reason. And it just it just looks like he's thinking, eh, well, I could wax the van on Thursday, <laughs> go to Pilates on Friday night, but then... Then when do I crucify the ape? Uh, he should he should rest his index finger on his chin just to make mm. it look more realistic. <laughs> uh, but it's it's all these cornball things that he just thinks are what you're supposed to do yeah. when you sing in a ballad. There's a bit where he doesn't have to sing at all for a few seconds, and other than just staring a space, which he seems to think would be like dead air, um, yeah. he runs through like a whole showreel of facial expressions, yes. which obviously got nothing to do with anything. Um, mm. It looks fucking bizarre. It looks like there's something wrong with it. And he's not really helped by this song because it's no Silver Lady. No. Even though it's, no, it's no, it also isn't. a Tony McCauley number. But it's, it's weirdly, it's, the production is very of its time. But the actual song is almost in the style of, uh, uh, like most of Tony, Tony McCauley's stuff, it's like a budget Jimmy Webb. Um, mm. It sounds quite a lot like Jimmy Webb's records that he was putting out in the 70s. But when you compare those to this, you see the difference between a job in songwriter touched by genius and a job in songwriter who's Tony McCauley. Because, you know, those records move around and follow emotional currents into unusual Mm. places. And this is all straight lines and ham, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I do not like straight lines and ham. It's not it's not it's not repulsive. Like the modern equivalent of this would be repulsive because there'd mm, be a sort yeah. of cockiness or cynicism to it. Um yeah. uh, which isn't here. It is a cash in, but everyone's trying to do what they can, you know. Yeah. But yeah, Silver Lady only struck once. Mm. And of course in an alternate universe it's Martin Shaw who has two number one singles in nineteen seventy seven. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, Don't Give Up On Us Baby would spend four weeks at number one being usurped by Don't Cry For Me Argentina by Julie Covington. It's all slow shit. Mm. And would sell 1.16 million copies in the UK alone, Whoa. finishing the year as the second best-selling single of 1977. It would also get to number one in America for a week in April of this year. The follow-up, Going In With Both Eyes Open, spent three weeks at number two in March of April of this year, held off the top spot by the next single we're going to hear. But the one after that, Silver Lady, threw itself off a wall and landed on its arse on the number one spot for three (laughs) weeks in October. And he's currently at number 17 this week with his penultimate chart single, Let's Have a Quiet Night In, which would get to number eight in January of 1978. Why the fuck would Uch want a quiet night in? I've never heard that one. He just wants to go out with Uggy Beer and just raise a bit of hell and chase some cars about. Fuck having a quiet night in. We can still come through Hello, 
there. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, quickly, quickly, we haven't got long. Please listen to the all-new Angela Sandbury podcast. It's a family one. Oh, my God, it's hilarious. There's so much muck in it. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A chart show really would not be complete with at least one ABBA hit of a year, and this was number one in March for Knowing Me, Knowing You. By a Christmas tree, bows to the inevitable and introduces Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA. Thank God. We've covered ABBA fucking loads on chart music and this is their ninth chart single in the UK. It's the follow-up to Money, 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 which got to number three for four weeks in December of 1976 and was the third cut off the 1976 LP Arrival. Despite it being available on a number one LP for five months, it got to number one in March of this year, ending the cruel reign of Chanson d'Amour. And here is the video. Oh, and what a video it is. But before we get into that, 1977 is pretty much the year that ABBA stopped fucking about and left us kids behind, didn't they? I mean, as an eight-year-old in late 1976, I could easily understand money 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 with its muster familiar like connotations <laughs> but but this song was beyond my comprehension yeah. what the, what's yeah. going on what the, what, it, what the what they're going on about it's a hard-boiled record i mean it, mm. it's a depressed record but not a self-piteous one which is quite a difficult trick to do it's, yeah. it's this day-to-day heartbreak of it, it it you know you don't detect this as a child but that kind of northern european fatalism to this record is is yeah. what makes it unique and brilliant an american mm. band you suspect wouldn't i mean for starters they wouldn't write a song like this but if they no. did do it they'd make it angry or a british band might make it whiny uh, mm. only abba can really make sorrow as majestic sounding as this but also as ordinary and day-to-day as this as well and mm. uh I have to say about the video, it's the greatest freeze frames in pop video history as far as I'm concerned. Oh, they just... They're just wonderful and etched in my memory. I think there's a colossal Ingmar Bergman influence on this video, I always felt. Mm. And on the record. (laughs) 
I mean, the thing is with the record, though, for me, I, I know what it's been despoiled by or what associations may yes. become associated with it, which is a shame because to me it's it's one of oh. their greatest. I mean, it's one of their... It's a fucking amazing song, isn't it? It's one of those songs where it's like almost got three melodic peaks to it that are just overwhelming. So the structure of the song mm. is just one more amazing hook after another. The verse is strong enough to be a chorus. Then it's got this massive bridge. Mm. Then it's got this amazing chorus. And then it goes even higher on the on the break up, breaking up is never easy, I know line. Uh, so mm. much to get your head around as a yeah. kid. And you absolutely massively respond to it melodically. Whilst, yeah, like you're completely right, Al. You don't quite know what this song is about. You, you sense it's about no. relationships, but you don't quite know... What it's about, you have to grow up a little bit to really understand and appreciate it, I think. But yeah. it's one of their greatest yeah. and, and one of their greatest videos as well. I mean, you can imagine in certain households, mum and dad are giving each other yeah. some proper side yeah, eye yeah, yeah. when this is going on. Yeah, but no more carefree laughter, silence ever after. Yeah. Fucking yeah. hell. It's, yeah. It is <laughs> an obvious point, but the fact that this song, yeah, helped along by Partridge, etc., is now still seen by the general public as some kind of kitsch artefact is mind-boggling and hugely disheartening. I think music fans have mostly now worked out that it's one of the most beautiful minglings of authentic heartbreak and instantly accessible popular music. You know, I mean, the winner takes it all Mm. is the bleaker, later, black-and-white three-hour drama and this is the earlier <laughs> colour picture that's just as full of pain yeah. but hasn't yet been quite so deflated by time and events and is all the more poignant for the, the life that's left in it and the, the sort of mm. the remains of hope you can hear raging against the oncoming polar night, you know. And it, it <laughs> understands that mm. poignancy is beauty plus pain and it starts from there. And it, it, yeah, it's one of the best things mm. of the seventies, um, easily, yeah. easily. Yeah, it is. And yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody else has ever been able to make acoustic guitars sound so much like cold air. Um, and the, yeah, the video, aside from reminding me how much I miss Sweden with its peculiar, hmm. twisted kind of sanity. Um, I mean, as well as being better singers than the blokes, the women in Abba are also better actors because. The mm-hmm. anguished glances and sort of baleful yeah. stares they give out here are seriously convincing. I mean, you'd almost think yeah, they yeah. weren't acting, and that's genuinely how they were feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, except that Bjorn and yeah. Benny are hopeless actors and look like they're on the verge of <laughs> chuckling, even here, as usual. Yes. Because for them, life is yeah. just about the joy of creation and the accumulation of money. Mm. And here they are excelling in yes. both. Um, nothing else touches them yeah. as deeply. Um, so they're, yeah, they're unbelievably happy. And they just look like they want to go inside because it's freezing. But I would say <laughs> that despite the bits of it that do look slightly funny, this is probably the first genuinely good in the sense of artistically halfway sophisticated pop video. Not that. I necessarily think that's an especially valuable thing in the context of pop videos, which often work best when they're really stupid or terrible Mm -hmm. or hilarious. But it's another thing you can do. And if you can pull it off, it will always work. Certainly on a song as adult in the non-pejorative sense as this one, right? 
I mean, you wouldn't mm. think that anyone could do this to create pure and hyper-commercial pop music which understands and respects the the lightness and simplicity of the form and which kids love, which also expresses the desperate weight of adult emotion and which which represents people who are old enough for things to have got heavy but young enough that mm. they still really care. And um, this song, in that sense, and hundreds of others, is... I mean, it's a barely credible achievement, which could probably only have come from a foreign land. And, mm. frankly, we don't deserve it. <laughs> I mean, the video is essentially us being nosy bastards at the members of ABBA being intimate with each other. And the opening scenes where everything's lovely... They come off as looking like the beginning of a sex education yeah. schools programme. <laughs> going to see yeah. a drawing of Benny Bollock naked any minute mm. now. <laughs> Neil's uh, uh, erection in, uh, what was it? Yeah. Neil? I'd like to stress it wasn't my erection. No, yeah, the, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> the side on thermal image of an erect cock in my sex education lesson, yeah. But then we go from being nosy bastards to feeling like we're outright stalkers. Hmm. Because, you know, yeah. we're getting some close-ups of um, Frida and Agneta with faces like smacked arses. As if they're just looking at us going, what the fuck are you looking at? Go back and, mm, mm. Go back and play with your fucking ricochet races, you little punks. <laughs> <laughs> and then they stomp off into the distance and look behind as if we're following them. Mm. I think this was probably my first cognizance of how important Frida is. I, I think mm. previous to this, my knowledge of ABBA... I mean, I, I knew ABBA yes. as a young kid, obviously, but... I'm not saying Agnetha was foregrounded, but she was to a certain extent. She, she yes, was kind she of pushed was, to the front. She was the blonde one. Exactly. Um, she was, but whereas this, you know, Frida is so important to this. Frida's looks and Frida's v- v- singing as well is so important to this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it did change my attitudes, I think, or, or my ideas about Abba. And I, as a kid, obviously, like you say, you're, you're, not, you're not interpreting or comprehending the lyrics, but... There's melodies here, and mm. there's a reach to the melody that creates poignancy in your heart, even if you don't know what the emotions yeah. are, even if you don't know what the song's about. Yeah. It tugs at your heartstrings quite literally. This is one of the two songs on this episode that, that immediately pulled me back to 1977. Mm. It's the uh, piano stabs in the verses. That takes me right back into 1977. Mm-hmm. Every time I do an episode of chart music, there's one song that I just get obsessed by and I just mm-hmm. play over and over and over again. And it was this one. And, um, you know, I spent so much time looking at the video. And now I, it's got to the point where I'm convinced that the video's been censored by the BBC because it goes from them being up here to them being a bit uncomfortable with each other and then the two female members being absolutely fucked off. And I'm convinced now that there's a penultimate scene in this video where Benny and Bjorn are caught having a snog with tongs and everything. <laughs> when you've got that in your head, the end scene makes absolute total perfect sense. It's like the, the two of them are going to go, oh, fucking men, you can't trust them. <laughs> Anything else to say about this incredible record? Oh, too much. Let's leave it. Yeah. So, knowing me, knowing you would spend five weeks at number one, eventually giving way to Free by Denise Williams. 
The follow-up, name of the game, would spend four weeks at number one in November. Fucking hell, what a one-two punch that is. Absolutely. And is still at number five in the UK chart. It would be the first cut from their new LP, Abbott the Album, which came out in Sweden a fortnight ago and would almost definitely would have been the Christmas number one LP. But the pre-orders here were so great that British pressing plants couldn't keep up with the demand, so its release has been put back to January of 1978. What a good sound they make, Abba, knowing me, knowing you. What's that you got there? Oh, it's a Christmas card from the guys. It says, Christmas comes for once a year, and when it comes, it's very exciting. But Top of the Pops is always fun, especially when done by Crew 19. Oh, isn't it good? Isn't that, isn't that love? Thank you, Crew 19. Edmonds and the kid don't even bother to introduce the next act, being too busy reading out a homemade Christmas card from the camera crew. It's Magic Fly by Space. Formed in Monaco in 1977, Space was the brainchild of Didier Marouane, a former pop singer who recorded his first single in 1975 and supported Johnny Halliday on tour. In 1976, after being introduced to synthesizers, he created this song as the theme for a French TV programme about astrology, but his current label knocked his new direction back. Undeterred, he formed a band on the quiet, signed a deal with Disc Vogue, changed his name to Ekama, hid under a spacesuit, and put this out as a single, and bugger me gently, it's got to number two in September of this year. The band are presumably drifting through the cosmos as we speak, having their Christmas dinner in pill form, so here's the video. <laughs> Did you know it was actually the Wombles inside these costumes? Yes! <laughs> 1977 was the real year zero of Simps in the pop charts, wasn't it? But uh, at this time, it's still the sole preserve of mad Euro sorts. You know, there was this, there was From Here to Eternity by Giorgio, Oxygen by Jean-Michel Jarre, and the the only Brits who appear to be having a go at the moment were the raw band with the crunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the thing is, to compare this to a couple of favourites from past podcasts from around this time, my only problem with this excellent record and presentation is that it's Mm. neither as absurd as two-man sound nor as no. musically <laughs> astonishing as From Here to Eternity by Giorgio yeah. Mad. So the uh-huh. word for uh-huh. it would be delightful rather than anything mm. stronger. Um, yeah. But I think, in a way, the sort of restrained and quite neat and tidy nature of its craziness is what makes it unique. Because there aren't many mm. records like this or gimmicky image groups like this that seem so mm. tasteful and poised as though this was yes. quite normal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and although it's certainly true that compared to what George Amroda was doing around the same time, this is trash, 
that's okay because it's sort of meant to be. It's really it's an update of the Spotniks or something like that. Yes, you know? it's like the Spotniks yeah. via hot butter. Um, mm. But that sound is still so fresh that you can just do this and it works okay. Same as in 1958, you could just turn up an electric guitar and do a grungy 12-bar instrumental. And it wouldn't be a Bo Diddley record, but it would be fine and worthwhile because it would still have that freshness to it. And this is like a synth equivalent of that. Yeah. I mean, it's really important to see them because the performance mm. is great. I really like the alternateness of the presentation. I think perhaps I was a little unfair to previously characterise this as a kind of shadows record done on synth. That, that, that's the damn with fake praise. It's a good record. But for me, I, I, you know what? This should be absolutely lodged in my brain. I mean, mm. what's not to like as a five-year-old kid, but... This track clearly didn't percolate through, and I must have been out of the room when this was on during Christmas Top of the Pops, because I actually recall it way more hearing this later on in my life, yeah. um, when I was far too into Hong Kong cinema, um, as the theme to Jackie Chan's excellent chop socky masterpiece, Snake and Eagle's Shadow. Yes. It, it oddly crops up here and then in between fight scenes and when Jackie's running about. I yeah. don't remember it from this year. I do remember things, other things that you mentioned, like Oxygen, for instance, or mm. you know, that Jean-Michel, I remember that. But I don't remember this. But the presentation of it, the visuals of it, are yes. really quite startling for the era. I'm not saying they're ahead Definitely, of their time, yeah. but they're right. They look good. They look right for the music. It's, it's They're all in, in their space gear, yeah. which would have looked amazing in 1977. Against the black background as well is really key. And they're tight in. Let down somewhat by the fact that uh, two of the band are wearing girls' belts. <laughs> so those big white belts with um with a big hoopy clasp but i love I, I love the kind of shoved in a room nature of it because the two yeah. the two of the keyboard players don't even have keyboard stands they've just kind of got these things on their laps and one of them is standing up playing yeah. a guitar type thing there's a kind yeah, of crush to it yeah there's a kind of it's like a lunar capsule type feel of, of, of crowdedness um, yes. and lots to look at so as a five year old this would have utterly delighted me I'm just astonished I don't remember any of it um, yeah. yeah I mean there are better synth records made in 77 and more important ones but for what it is the textures of the sound here are absolutely delicious mm. Yeah, the, the best yeah, one is definitely that amazing motoric drummer who I believe revels mm-hmm. in the perfect name of Joe Hammer uh, and he gives that amazing performance. It's like rock'em, sock'em, robot drumming. And he's yes. just yes. twisting his abdomen tires, tirelessly <laughs> backwards and forwards and just blankly whumping on that lovely old Gretsch dr- uh, jazz yeah. drum kit. Yeah, why hasn't he got a space drum? Yeah, I, like, I think it adds to it. Because yeah. there's, there's definitely yeah. a, a sort of that sort of slightly old, you know, pre-steampunk uh, homemadeness to this. Mm. Like the greeny... Mm who I presume is Ekama, because he's in the middle at the front. Um, yeah. I mean, his, his outfit, it's like he's washed it a couple of times too often. You know what I mean? It's yeah. starting to bag a bit. And he just, he's got to work on his stance, because he just sticks his arse out in a sort of <laughs> bent-legged half-crouch, like a really bad French physical comedian. You know, I mean, there there is no other kind. Yeah, but all those hours in zero gravity. <laughs> yeah, it's true. His legs have atrophied. Neil, you know, we've established that your man was an expert at detecting who was on drugs on top yeah, of the pops. Yeah, 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 yeah. Due to the wearing sunglasses, what would she have made of a band all in well, astronaut helmets? No, but, but all in astronaut helmets. Must have been that's... on all the drugs. <laughs> 
No, uh, no. You see, astronaut helmets—they're not sunglasses. Sunglasses are a different thing, Al. Right. Sunglasses are a thing you put on when you've taken drugs and you want to hide it. A space helmet, as uh, astronauts outfit, outfit, is something you put on. Uh, because you're in space and you're an astronaut, she right. would not have actually insisted that um, space um, were on drugs. She would have, she would have li- left them be. Mm. Um, and what I really like, by the way, about the performance is that nobody looks like they're playing the music. Yes. Um, that, you know, they're, they're all just doing something. Well, they got gloves yeah, on they're, they're, for they're, a start. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, I mean, normally, as a kid even, you do look at hands and see what they're doing and you, yes. and you hope that they match the melody because that will make sense to your brain. Mm. Nobody here is doing any of that. No. They're just kind of pouring at their instruments like, like yeah, strange space children. It's, it's nice, that, that, that touch. And they're, they're looking at a nice lady as well. Oh, yeah. A bit of space crumpet <laughs> reflected in their yes. visors. What's quite funny is why they try and make it look like they're responding to her without any facial expression. <laughs> so they yeah. just have yeah. to do a little head movement. It reminds me of there was an old cat food advert from years ago <laughs> where a woman in a sexy swimsuit walks down the side of a, an outdoor swimming pool. And then it cuts to a cat looking up and going, wow, <laughs> it's a bit ever so slightly disturbing. It's like it's going to be a, a porno remake of Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. I'm not, <laughs> not sure to whom they were trying to sell that cat food. Do we know who the lady in question is? No, I got no, it I instantly. Wei Wei Wong. Ah. Formerly of the young generation who moved mm-hmm. to ITV to be the golden girl in the golden shot in 1974. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and she spent this year playing a nursing doctor in the house. Don't right. you think, though, it's only the French who could have done this? Well, no, not only the French, but only people from a non-rock country, right? Mm. Because they can't see what's wrong with wearing these space gimp suits and ignoring <laughs> most of the non-binding laws of rock and roll. You know, while at the same time sort of trying to be rock and roll in some sort of disengaged, confused way. Um, and what comes out is balanced perfectly between rubbish and non-rubbish, you know. And if these were English, there'd be someone laughing up his sleeve, you know what I mean, and yeah, ruining yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And there's just something pure about it. You can just enjoy the sounds and the squelch and the, the starry sky and you feel the fresh air pouring through it, you know. So, Magic Fly would spend three weeks at number two, held off number one by Way Down by Elvis. Fucking hell. If Elvis <laughs> had to die while he was having a shit, this would have been number one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sliding doors. It would be their only chart single in the UK, but a remixed version would get to number 88 in 1985. They put out three LPs in the late 70s and later recruited Madeline Bell, formerly of the 60s group Blue Mink, and latterly known for doing the Read the Road public information film and the Wonderful Gas adverts, but they split up in 1980. There's a junction coming. There's a junction coming. There's a junction coming. <laughs> oh, Al, you remember that dream you had about the Sikh member of Shawadiwadi? that only you could see. But I was just thinking, if there had been a Sikh member of space, do you think a load of Daily Express readers would have got furious that he didn't have to wear the helmet? Yes.
Space, of course, and Magic Fly. Now, 1977 started off with this particular number one. I suppose you could call it the Christmas record of last year. Johnny Mathis and When a Child is Born. finally bothers to tell us who space are before taking us all the way back to the beginning of the year and a little bit before as he introduces When a Child is Born by Johnny Mathis. Born in Texas in 1935, Johnny Mathis was a promising high school athlete who turned down a high jump trial for the US Olympic team in 1956 to attend his debut recording session for Columbia Records. By 1958, he was a huge star in America, already putting out his first greatest hits LP, and he also had his first chart single in the UK when Teacher Teacher got to number 27 in June of that year. He'd have eight UK chart hits throughout the 60s, and then the hits dried up over here until 1975, when his cover of the stylistic Stone in Love With You got to number 10 in March of that year. This was the follow-up, a cover of the 1974 Italian tune Salado, a vocal instrumental originally performed by the Daniel Center Cruz Ensemble, who was then given German lyrics by Michael Holm later that year and renamed Trantenlugenicht, Tears Don't Lie, getting to number one over there. After Muriel Matthew and Nezi Karabocek had a bang on it for France and Turkey respectively in 1975, there were two attempts at an English lyric, both of which were a bit Jesus-y. The first one, There Comes a Day, which had a go at people for not bigging up Christ until he was dead, was put out first by Vera Lynn, but sunk without trace. The second, written by Fred Jay, an Austrian Schlager singer who had been going since 1945, was a more opaque tribute to Little Baby Jesus and was one of the last songs ever recorded by Bing Crosby the month before he died, but his label didn't think to put it out as a single. So Johnny Mathis had a go, and it was put out as a single in November of 1976, on the same week as 100 Ton and a Feather put their version out. Uh, who was the singer on that? Jonathan fucking King. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's his mention for this episode of Chart Music. Thankfully, this version prevailed, and it got to number one on Christmas week, 1976, denying show what he what is under the moon of love its rightful due. <laughs> and again, I always make this complaint every year when we do a Christmas Top of the Pops. Last year's Christmas number one is like last year's Beano book. Yeah. Reddit. Uh, Dennis bounced on a trampoline to eat the apples off the tree. Uh, yeah. You only laugh once at that. <laughs> yes. It's a shame, though, really, that it came out tail end of 1976. Mm. Because if it had only... Oh, missed opportunities, you see. The Omen came out three months earlier oh. in June 1976. How good would The Omen have been if at the end that shot of Damien smiling could have been accompanied by this record? <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> It would have been fucking, fucking fantastic. But ho-hum, mm. missed opportunity. I was always intrigued by the B-side of this, by the way. 
Yeah. Um, Every time you touch me, I get high. Is that an appropriate B-side for this song? Well, I don't know. You look at the set for this video, it looks like he's sat in Snoop Dogg's airing cover. Yes, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) Very clear memories of seeing this as a kid with Johnny Mm. peeping between the ferns, you know. Mm. On his director's chair. Yeah, and singing live to an orchestra that sounds like it's on another planet. Yes. Um, I don't I don't understand what's going on sonically mm. here. Mm. But he's enough of a pro to keep your mind off it as best he can because he plugs away and he performs the fuck out of this song, which yes. needs it mm. because without a big performance, it's barely recognisable as music. Yes. And like the brain would just disregard it. It's like, it's like, it's like he's singing over the background music in a funeral parlour mm. or something he's dreamt, you know, or it's, or it's the, the glassy sound in his head while he's in a coma. Yeah. You know, just, it's, uh, but it's for old people. Yes, so, it really is. What, what can you say? Because old people are hard to understand. Yes. And even as I get older, I still don't understand. No. You know when you watch Challenge TV or mm. Yesterday or one of these cable channels in the daytime, and all the ads are for old people, and it's like it's for mm. stair lifts and you yeah. know weird money schemes and stuff. And yet there are almost no actual old people in these adverts. No, they are always replaced by people of about fifty or fifty-five masquerading mm. as OAPs. So yeah. it's like it's as if the current generation of old people can't face themselves, which I completely <laughs> understand. But yes. you end up seeing these graying but essentially functional actors and thinking hang on you're too young to have a full set of dentures or mm. you're too young to be incontinent and yeah you could get up them stairs yeah it's I, it must just be wishful thinking on the part of these people because they don't want to feel that this product which is clearly for them is for oaps right yeah. so it's like, oh right well you know like 50 year olds buy it right but yeah that doesn't do much for the for the self-image of those of us who are gradually closing in on our 50s. Um, or past it. Well, it's like, this is what's left, you know. It's yeah. like, well, <laughs> well, hang on a minute, I'm only 47. It's like, yeah, give it five years and I'll, I'll need someone <laughs> to start a tomato for me. It's, uh, it's this generation who couldn't face their own middle age mm. and are now refusing to face their own dotage. And it's like, you know, thanks for Brexit. And yeah, thanks for cunts. palming off your terror on us. Cheers. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But this song, you're right, the music, you can, you can easily imagine Huey Green talking over it, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. With its militaristic overtones at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the w- spoken bit is, is perhaps the oddest bit. Yes. Uh, when yeah. he suggests that one of these kids may well grow up to be the Messiah. Yeah, it's the kind of Nazarene-friendly content none of us need at Christmas. <laughs> that kid be forty-two years old now. Where the fuck are you? Where were you the other week, you cunt? Come on, come and sort this shit all of a world out now. Well, the best bit about that talk over is his crazed grin and chuckle at yeah. the possibility that a child might be yellow. He finds yes. this delightful: black, white. Yellow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds a bit peculiar now. Um, but he's also doing that face, that sort of thoughtful face, mm. to try and make it look like he's suddenly been struck by these ideas. Yeah. And we're getting it all yeah. fresh off his brain, 
you know, mm. Uh, mm, mm, <laughs> it's like he's, and his facial because he's not an actor. No. His facial movements are so fake and forced. You know, it makes David's soul look like Ian Curtis. You know, um, <laughs> it's like he's on, uh, like he's on pointless. <laughs> and he's yes. like, oh, the clock's ticking down. Oh, and types of fish, uh, silver pomfret, <laughs> blue runner, cod, cod. I'm going to go for cod. Alexander. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a bit weird to talk about a child being yellow, um, mm. you know, unless it's a problem with Billy Rubin. But it's, I think, <laughs> also this is before the word brown began to be used as a term of self-identification. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I, that's what I think. Mm-hmm. I think that would have sounded quite racist at the time, whereas yellow is perfectly all right. So it means yeah. that most of Asia is excluded from his racial equ- equivocation. <laughs> it's like wherever this messiah is going to come from, it ain't the subcontinent, right? Anywhere else on the planet is a possibility. Yeah. Um, but but speculating that the next Jesus isn't going to be white, that that would be a bit disconcerting in some households. In, in some households. But, but Johnny Mathis, he's an odd pop star anyway. He's an odd yeah. figure. You yeah. know, a gay Republican, five yeah. years at this point still from coming out. And even in 82, it's arguable that he didn't really properly come out. He said that homosexuality was something that he was familiar with. He, no, he said, say. it's a way of life I've grown accustomed That's to. That's right. It's like yeah. he's talking about being lactose intolerant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this odd past of nearly being an Olympic high jumper, I tried to find out whether he was a Frosby flop or scissor kick. Star, but um, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't quite get it. He's probably scissors kick if it's the late mid-50s. Yeah, Frosby flop doesn't... Didn't 68, that was, yeah. 68. But I mean, I th- the thing is with Mathis, he, he keeps himself elusive almost throughout his career. Yeah. And I think it's a deliberate strategy to be kind of non-threatening to white audiences mm. and sort of keep... You know, you don't see Johnny Mathis turn up on red carpets and partying all the way through his career. He kind no. of hides and disappears and and I think that's I'm not saying it's deliberately pitched this way but I you know it's interesting whenever I've I'm a big fan of John Waters the filmmaker and in mm. his book role models he does a whole chapter on Johnny Mathis because he's obsessed right. with Johnny Mathis really? and he's obsessed with him precisely because he keeps himself hid he's managed to be this huge huge star for the longest longest time and he's kept himself hid and he's kept his sexuality hid not not when I say kept it hid he just hasn't been flamboyantly heterosexual if you like do you know what I mean mm. so there's he appealed to boys and girls in that 50s period when he was yeah. first coming up so he's 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 an odd pop star Johnny Mathis and mm. uh, you know he's an odd one to figure out he does finally come out I think and say I am gay and, and it was only 2017 as far as I can tell yeah. that he did finally come out um at this point yeah he, he's I mean He's the third biggest selling artist of the 20th century. Yeah, but, but that's with this insane, kind of isn't it? It's mad with this kind of maintenance-free fame that he's yeah. done nothing. You know, he's he he doesn't really maintain. It's just there, yeah. and he's just kept himself hid, and it's, yeah. it's stayed there. He just waited until his all his fans were dead, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so when a child is born, stayed at number one for three weeks, being relieved of its duties by "Don't give up on us, baby." 
Mathis would have to wait over a year before returning to the charts, duetting with Denise Williams on Too Much, Too Little, Too Late, which got to number three in March of 1978. And he went all disco and would have one last hurrah in the charts in 1979 when Gone, Gone, Gone got to number 15 in September of that year. All across the land Dawns a brand new morn This comes to pass When a child is born Right then, pop crazed youngsters, we're going to break off for a tin salmon sandwich and an handful of matchmakers. So come and join us tomorrow and we'll see how this episode finishes. Stay pop crazed. <laughs> Chart music. Great big 